0: A young man who was called to preach showed early on great potential for the Lord. He excelled in all his college classes and maintained a good testimony in his daily life. Each weekend he was actively involved in a variety of ministries, getting a great experience As graduation approached, however, he was well aware that his bank account was diminishing under the burden of monthly tuition payments. There may be a few others here that can identify with that sensation. Looking ahead, he wondered, how could he possibly afford to go to seminary? That was his plan, that was his ambition, but how could he pay for it? His faith started to to falter at that thought, and he decided to accept a full-time job that came with a four-year commitment assuring his classmates that he would join them in seminary uh, after that was over and he was just going to be saving up some money in order to be able to go to seminary. Just a temporary delay. But Satan had won a significant victory at that moment. Satan uses a variety of temptations to draw people away to the path of sinful self-service. That's his ambition. That's what he is all about. Those enticements are subtle. They are relentless and far too often effective. God's people are special targets. Because when we fall, it has direct impact on our service for the cause of Christ. Last week, we saw Jesus at his baptism devote himself to God's service. And now in Luke chapter 4, Satan enters the picture. He comes to test whether Christ really meant it. He is going to try in our passage today to divert Christ from God's plan and if possible perhaps even to disqualify him from God's service. He has the same goal for all of God's people. This chapter also presents the outcome. Jesus resisted all those temptations and thus becomes the pattern for victory for all of us. But wait, is he really a valid example? I mean, was it even possible for Jesus to sin, to give in to temptation? Maybe the outcome was just a foregone conclusion. He just had to go through the routine of saying no, no, no. you imagine Christ just flipping these things off, saying, nope, nope, not tempted, not tempted, no. Anything else? Nope. No to that one too. Was this easy for Christ? Or was it a real temptation That's a point of controversy among theologians. There are many who argue that it is impossible for him to sin. And why do they think that? Because he's God. God can't sin. In fact, he can't even be tempted to sin. But he's also man. And that combination is unprecedented. We enter dangerous territory if we try to draw conclusions like we know what happens when you combine God and man. It's both. So what does the Bible say? Luke begins this chapter by telling us that Jesus uh, went forth... In the uh, being led by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 of this chapter tells us something else significant. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, not in Luke's gospel, but Mark tells us something else that's stunning. He tells us that there was something that Jesus did not know. In fact, Jesus himself admitted in Mark chapter 13 that there was something he didn't know. Well, how can he be omniscient and not know something? How can he be all-powerful and need the Holy Spirit's help? How could he be all-wise and need the Holy Spirit to guide him? You find those provocative questions? I hope so. Because we're about to take just a few more minutes before we get into the text to look for an answer. So would would you mind joining me in seminary classroom for just a moment? We need an answer to this because either this passage only describes Christ's experience with temptation, or it also describes our example. Well, here is the, uh, the, the thought of a prominent theologian that when I first heard this years ago, uh, it, it really helped me to grapp- as I was grappling with this issue. He explains it this way. Christ had two things going on at the same time during his earthly ministry. On the one hand, he still maintained all of his responsibilities as the second person of the Trinity, and that includes, God's word tells us, holding the whole world together. By him, all things consist. All right, that, that's no uh, small feat. Uh, He's having to focus on that. But at the same time, during his earthly ministry, he is approaching everything from the standpoint of his humanity. He got hungry. He got sleepy. That doesn't happen to God. It did happen to the God-man. So here's a proposed resolution that at the same time that he is fully uh, omniscient and omnipotent as the second person of the Trinity, during his earthly ministry, he is operating on a human level of consciousness. This is a personal restriction that he entered voluntarily. He had to learn things. He needed help doing things. And I think it's best that we understand this as going on throughout his earthly ministry. So, how did he do the miracles? How did he know what people were thinking if he's operating from his humanity? The answer would be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed to him everything he needed to know to fulfill his ministry. He also enabled him to do everything he needed to do to fulfill his ministry. You see the importance of that? Because we have the same resource. He's entrusted the same Holy Spirit to all his people. And if Christ won the victory over temptation by the Holy Spirit, as this passage indicates, then you can do that too. This passage then portrays Christ's temptations and his victory as real. And as such, he is a genuine example for us. Jesus shows us in this passage the path to victory over sin. But you've got a decision to make. And it's a decision that you need to make every time you face temptation. That decision is to obey God's word. That's what we we are going to see Jesus doing throughout this passage. Not just quoting God's word, choosing to obey God's word. So verse 1 is where Luke tells us that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, that's a characteristic that we strive for as well, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? You can't have just a part of the Holy Spirit, and you can't get any more of him. He, he comes as a package. He's a person. So to be full of the Spirit means fully submissive to him. Jesus is submissive to the Holy Spirit, and as such is being led by the Spirit in the wilderness. This is the very next event in Christ's life after his baptism, which is why he leaves the Jordan and he goes westward where there are hills that lead right up into the Judean wilderness. He's in the wilderness, not by mistake. The Spirit knows that Satan is planning to tempt him there, but it's all part of God's plan. And so he follows the Spirit's guidance to the wilderness, and he is there. And this, this wilderness is barren. They are, it's just a series, miles and miles of low rolling hills and just parched ground. He was there, verse 2 tells us, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. The implication is it's not 40 days in the wilderness and then Satan shows up, He's being tempted throughout the entire 40 days. Temptation after temptation. We are going to get insight into just three of them. But it does seem that these three temptations represent three major categories of temptation that Satan tries to use on us as well. And it could well be that the, that the scripture intends this to represent in these three categories virtually all kinds every kind of temptation this could well be uh, comprehensive that Jesus is hungry after 40 days that's the last part of verse 2 he ate nothing during those days 40 days no food Whoa, not volunteering for that opportunity, are you? Jesus isn't the first one to do that. And that becomes part of his answer. Moses did the same thing. In fact, we have a little more explicitly stated regarding Moses that it was 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Humanly speaking, that's not possible. How did Moses survive? Well, it would be the same way that Jesus survived. But when they were ended, he was hungry. We can imagine he's really hungry, hungrier than we have ever been in our lives. That's a point of weakness. And Satan knows it. He knows your points of weakness as well. How does he know? Is Satan omniscient? No, of course not. That's only God. But he's really observant, and he's got lots of experience. He knows when you're tired. He knows when you've had a hard day. He knows when your defenses are down. He knows when you're weak. He knows where you are weak. He can discern those weaknesses, and he's ready to tempt you. Verses 3 and 4 is Satan trying to exploit those weaknesses The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. I can testify there are lots and lots of stones available in the Judean wilderness. Nobody would miss a few. If you are the son of God, what's Satan doing there? Is he challenging Christ's identity? I don't think so. He seems to have known who this is from his birth and tried to prompt Herod to put him to death right away. He no doubt has been keeping his eye on Jesus as he has grown. He's had experience for 40 days trying to tempt him to sin and no success so far. He's not giving up, though. Satan is persistent. He's not, test- he's not here challenging, are you really the son of God? I want you to prove it. Christ would be under no obligation to prove it, and that's not Satan's concern anyway. What he's really saying here is, listen, you're the son of God. Why should you be hungry? Especially when there's something you can do about it. What he's really tempting him to do is be dissatisfied with God's care. The implication here is, you know why you're hungry? Because God hasn't given you food for 40 days. He can do the same thing for us. Hey, God's not really taking such good care of you, is he? You feel like you've got enough money? No. Why is God withholding from you? God's care isn't all that it ought to be. There's the temptation. He doesn't really care for you. Maybe he's overlooked you recently and you could decide to help yourself. That is, in God's plan, there is a need in your life, and so far, God isn't meeting that need. But you see a way where you can seize the answer, you can get what you need a different way. Don't don't wait for God. Go ahead and turn these, these stones into bread. Why wait for God when you can help yourself? Now, we can't turn stones into bread. But there are legitimate needs of the human body and of life that we need it because God made us that way. We get hungry because God made us depend on food. We get sleepy because God made us so that we run out of energy periodically on a fairly regular basis. Uh, There are other aspects of need that God has given, but in every single case, he has plans to meet that need, although sometimes it's not, at the exact moment that we might want it. There's the test. When you're facing need, will you trust God? Will you trust his provision? Will you trust his timing? Will you be willing to experience need longer than you want to? There's the question, the answer, choose to trust God. Rather than, I deserve better than this, oh, Satan loves that argument. Rather than, I deserve better, God deserves my trust. I will wait for him. Now Christ's answer is succinct. And as we'll see in every one of his answers to each one of these temptations, he quotes the Old Testament. In fact, he quotes in each case from the same book of the Old Testament. They all come from Deuteronomy, a marvelous uh, 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 book from the Old Testament communicating truth. So Jesus answered him, It is written. It stands as true is really the point there. And there's no changing this. What truth is he referring to? Man shall not live by bread alone. Now bread is the means that God, bread representing all kinds of food, that's the means God ordinarily chooses to sustain us. His point, though, is that bread, all food, comes from God, so it is food by God's grace. Here's the equation. Food without God's grace is failure. God's grace without food is success. Life can go on by God's grace even if it doesn't include food but if you have food and not God's grace you can't make it there's no hope so if for a little while longer God's plan is to sustain Christ's physical life by grace alone that's okay with me There was a young woman in the church where I grew up that seemingly from the earliest age had her heart set on getting married. By sixth grade, when I became acquainted with her, she had already had and lost a couple of boyfriends. In sixth grade, I became her target. Kind of came out of the blue i wasn't looking for a girlfriend but there she was and uh well i guess that's not bad all right i I agreed and uh, a year later when i said i don't think this is going to work out she's devastated because she was sure we were going to be getting married someday what she found another one and another one and success and we all knew That whichever one was on deck, when she's actually able to get married, that'll be the one. And it'll be the perfect one, wouldn't you know? Although really any of them would do. Because here was her thinking, and I heard her say this. If I could just get married, I'll be happy. Now, marriage, in fact, satisfies, is God's way of satisfying a God given desire. A God given strong desire. But God doesn't always meet that desire in the usual way. But the reality is, in our world, and our world. Uh, has discovered this, this ability in a big way in recent generations. If God's not giving you the opportunity to get married, you can satisfy that inner desire without getting married. And that turns out to be one of Satan's most potent temptations. Will you wait until marriage? There's a key question. Or will you let Satan divert you to trust yourself instead of God and seize what's available to you, striving to satisfy that desire? Sadly, that woman did find someone to marry her right out of high school. And just a few years later, they were divorced. It's been a sad life ever since. Marriage is not essential for happiness. God is. God's plan, trusting him, committing sexual desires to the Lord until marriage and if marriage is not part of his plan for you, he can sustain you the rest of your life. God's grace can do that. Have trouble sleeping at night sometimes? Get up in the morning and realize, I didn't get enough sleep. Well, you can moan about that all day long, or you can say, God, ordinarily I need more sleep than that. Would you make the sleep I got sufficient to meet the need? Can God's grace do that? Yes, it can. If by God's grace, you pass that test, Satan is ready to probe another area of human weakness. Verses five through eight. The call here is a little bit different. The challenge is a little bit different. The answer is just a bit different, this second category. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Another gospel writer tells us it was a very high mountain. Where is the mountain high enough that you can see all the kingdoms of the world at one time? Okay, that's the point. It doesn't exist. This is not a natural viewpoint. You can go somewhere and see for yourself. This is clearly supernatural. Supernatural. And it reminds us that God has allowed Satan some uh, uh, supernatural power that he exercises. So he is uh, able to give Jesus a view of all the kingdoms of the world in just a moment of time and have, have that glimpse. And that's part of then his temptation. He said to him in verse 6 To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. Is that true? Can he give the kingdoms of this world? Has he received? And this is actually an admission on, on Satan's part that whatever authority he has has been delegated to him. There is a higher authority. He doesn't dwell on that uh, at this point, but he says, I've got this authority. I can give it to anybody I want to. Uh, Again, in verse six, and I give it to whom I will. There's a deliberate correspondence here to God's plan. Jesus came Uh, uh, into ministry knowing that it involved his his death intense suffering rejection and then resurrection, and even separation from God and resurrection from the dead and where is he going to end up on the throne of the world God's promise to his son is that follow this plan and I have waiting for you all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. And now Satan is offering virtually the same thing. Except in my plan, Satan is implying, you don't have to die What do I have to do? Verse 7, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, I admit that when I was a child uh, reading this, I thought, well, that'll be easy. A quick kneel down, get back up again. I didn't mean it. And uh, go back to serving God again. And then you get everything. Okay. clearly that's not Satan's point and Christ knows it. This commitment, this worship is everything. This is turning from God. This is not just bowing down one time. This is taking Satan as master. When he says, I'll give you all these things. Also, uh, the, the, uh, the added unspoken feature is, and of course, I'll be over you. And I'll be now the one telling you what to do. You'll be serving me. Christ sees through all of that. Sadly, often we don't. The parallel here for us is that Satan can offer you all you want. He's got lots and lots of resources. He can show you things. Uh, each one of these three, I didn't mention this earlier, but each one of these three seems to correspond to the, uh, to the temptation of Eve In the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, verse 6, there were three things that were part of that temptation. This one is she saw that the fruit was uh, a delight to the eyes. He can show you things. He can give you things. He can give you things that perhaps it's God's plan that you get eventually anyway, but you can do it in Satan's plan without all the hardships, without the suffering, without the problems, the disappointments. I just give it to you now is Satan's offer. What do you want? You can pretty much name your price. A feature of this, in our experience, though, is often our price is really low. Satan doesn't have to give much at all. And we're ready to exchange the Lord for him. Just temporarily. It's just for right now. But what a bad deal. This is deceptive, as Satan always is. It is enslaving, and it is always a shabby substitute for what God has planned. As we see in verse 7 Satan can offer all you want, but he requires all you have. If you will will then worship me, all will be yours. Once again, Jesus is ready with a verse from the Bible. But again, the point isn't that he knows that verse. Isn't that great? That would be a real help to us because the point of him quoting it is he knows what God expects. He knows what is right, not because he's so smart, but because he's read it in God's word. The real point, though, is I have chosen and I choose right now again to worship God and serve him alone. You can't tempt me with things. You can't tempt me with an easier way. Satan demands allegiance, and in that sense, every instance of sin is an act of worship to Satan. But God is the one that deserves your allegiance. He is your highest priority. No exceptions to that. By God's grace, no momentary lapses. There was once a recent police academy graduate that applied for a position in a small rural town. He had already tried to get into a police department in a larger city, but they could be a little more particular and they wanted somebody with some experience. So he went to this small town thinking, maybe I can get in there and get that experience. He and his wife were expecting their first child and so he was feeling some financial pressure He really needs this job. The interview went well until the captain asked about his residence explaining that all of our officers need to live within 15 miles of headquarters. Well, that was going to be a problem because this man had, and his wife had just built a house 50 miles away. He didn't have any long-term plans for this position. As a believer, he knew exactly what he ought to say. But with one eye toward that financial pressure, the growing family, he said, oh yes, I live within that distance. And he reported to the captain his parents' address. Well, he got that job and worked there for two years. But not only was he miserable, his service for God was futile. It was empty. He knew he was doing no good thing for the kingdom of God in all of his attempts. So finally, convicted by the Holy Spirit, he decided to confess the truth. He went to the captain Told him everything, and the captain sat there stunned. After a few moments, he collected himself and said, wow, that had to really take some nerve to come in here and tell me the truth. He said, I'll tell you what, you can keep your job if you'll move to town. And the man readily agreed to do that. God can provide. Your responsibility to decide to serve the Lord, no matter what pressures you might be facing in life. Accept the hardships of God's plan. No shortcuts, no compromise. If that's what God expects me to endure, I'll do it because I'm committed to serve him. That leaves us with one more category of temptation. And this one may be the most challenging of all. In this case, verse 9, Satan took him to Jerusalem or out of the wilderness, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Pinnacle of the temple. What's that? The closest thing we can imagine is it'd be like the steeple on our building, But I don't think it's appropriate for us to picture Christ kind of clinging to a a narrow area like that and uh, looking down. Pinnacle of the temple doesn't mean a steeple. It's just the highest point of the Temple Mount. For years, they thought it was on overlooking the Mount of Olives in the Kidron Valley. But about 25 years ago, they discovered something just below the Temple Mount. There's this beautiful stone about the size of the top of our pulpit. And on that stone was a Hebrew engraving. And it said, it says, it still exists, to the place of trumpeting. Indicating that that stone stood at the highest point of the Temple mount not the temple building but the temple mount and when the romans destroyed it that was the first stone that had to go overboard and all the way down to the valley below and then all the other stones piled on top so it took years for them finally to take stone off of stone and here's what they found That's the platform where the priest would blow the trumpet announcing the beginning of the Sabbath every week. The place of trumpeting. There's a place to stand there and a low wall in front of him. And he said, from this point, cast yourself down. And now we find out something really disturbing about Satan. He knows the Bible too. and He can quote it. He's not committed to obey it. But he has a plan to test God's grace. And he said, Look at the promises God has given. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This all comes from two verses in Psalm 91. Verses 11 and 12. His test here is God said he's going to take care of you. Why don't you cast yourself down? Can you imagine how cool it would be to gracefully come down and then softly land? Not just really fun. I mean, this is bungee jumping without the bungee. But. Really impressive to other people. It's a wonderful experiential opportunity for you. And you've got God's promise. He's obligated to give you that soft landing. What a deal. This is what is uh, called in... uh, 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 in, in Genesis 6, in Genesis 3, 6, as it was desirable to make one wise. Personal enhancement, a personal experience. And in John, 1 John 2, 15, it's the pride of life. Pride. He's appealing here, and he does appeal today to human pride. Go ahead and put God's grace to the test. But in so doing, he's also twisting God's word. Wouldn't you know? He left out a phrase. Quoted everything perfectly, but he left out one little phrase. It's in verse 11. And he omitted the words, in all your ways. That is... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. In other words, the normal course of life. You go about your business of serving God, doing what he wants, and that is what gets God's guarantee of safety. Nothing can happen to you apart from God's plan. It is a marvelous promise. Satan can appeal to your pride. And now we come to the moment of truth. What will Jesus decide? Once again, Jesus is ready with God's word and a commitment to obey it. He says, it is said, this also comes from Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God gave this promise, let's see. Okay, that is inappropriate when you're dealing with the God of the universe. Don't do it, the Bible says. I won't do it, Jesus says. Put the Lord first. His honor is more important than your pleasure. Satan responds to that, and this this time he's done this is the, the uh, end result of all of these temptations letting us know that it has been, uh, he's been persistent, he's been comprehensive, there's no reason to expect he is any less than that now. But it's also sporadic, he left Jesus until an opportune time, he'll be back. We don't feel temptation at every moment of every day. Satan knows the value of backing off for a bit and then ambushing when you're not expecting it. Satan's ideal would be that you enter this new week looking at your agenda, looking ahead and thinking, ah, it looks like pretty clear sailing. And put your guard down. Ah, a weak moment. He'll try again soon. That's fair warning. That college graduate showed up a year later at the seminary just to visit his friends in one of their classes. There they were, diligent students. Here he is brand new clothes looking pretty good he's got some money now they all admired the clothes but the professor that in that class he remembered him and he identified him before everybody else that young man was the best Hebrew student I have ever had in my career and then he reminded that student he said now you said, you promised you'd be back here at seminary someday. Oh yes, I'll, I'll be back, he assured everyone. He never did. Someone that God had equipped in special ways to serve him never did. That's a Success story of Satan. The answer, Christ won these victories because he was following the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could help him know what Bible verse He needs to obey. He can help you with that as well. When Satan's temptations are subtle, he can help you see to the truth. And when the temptation is powerful, the Holy Spirit can enable you to say, I am going to obey God. I am not indulging in that sin. The Holy Spirit can help you do that, the very same one that helped Christ. But you have to decide. Now, obeying God is hard. Satan makes it harder. The Holy Spirit makes it possible. Would you ask God to help you face temptation in his power and with his wisdom and not on your own? Let's ask for that right now individually as we bow for prayer. Father, we do in fact need your help that you can supply through your spirit. We are thankful for a Savior who sets the example for us, shows us what is possible by your grace. Father, we pray for your help then that we might choose in every instance to trust you, to serve you, and to love you. Father, we long for victory. We pray that this would be a victorious week as you help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.